Knowledge is worth the dig. I've got yet another title slide, wondering if this is any better. Um, uh, I'm not going to make you vote on the three of them so far, but I've started getting emails from people saying, please, this is better than the one you picked. Use this. And so I'm giving it another shot. The passage that's worthy of our digging deeply into Scripture this morning is found in Paul's book, Letter to the Romans. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 in detail. But before we do that, I want you to hear this text. And it is my hope that we could get Dieter somewhere, Tischler, who has memorized this. Dieter, are you? Ah! To grab your might. Hmm? He's, he, oh, uh, yes. Come up, Paul. And remember, the first letter to the Roman church would not have been handed out on copies. It would have been read to the church. So listen to the first 17 verses of Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, but who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we have received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of His Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened up for me to come to you. I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, how that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I may have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew than for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Thank you, Brother Paul. Okay, you've heard the text. Now, I've got to get you to pay really strict attention to part of it, 
Okay? So this is what I want you to... Thank you. I'm so delighted you thought that was funny. Somehow we lost our sound. But that's all right. We'll do it again anyway. Because that was really a fun slide. I need you to pay attention. Yes, you. I want you watching this now, okay? So here it is. Oh, there. We just got the sound. Okay, wait, wait, wait. We're going back. Come on, come on. All right, all right, all right. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or from faith for faith, the ESV says. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if that is the key passage that we're going to focus on, I got to tell you how I first became familiar with this passage. When I was a young boy in high school, lo those many years ago, I went to a public high school where people did not talk about their faith openly. They did not show their faith openly. It just wasn't a popular thing. There were a group of us who were deeply convicted about our faith and tried to find ways to subtly influence others. One of the suggestions made by one in our group was that we just simply carry a Bible with us. So that as we carried our books to and from class, a Bible would be there and folks would see it. Now I was a little bit I don't know if the word is embarrassed, but, but, but I wasn't that comfortable doing that. And I wasn't comfortable in part because I thought it would affect the way people perceived me. And I didn't want to, to, to distance people in the process of trying to be a witness and a light to them, if that makes sense. Remember, this is, I'm 15, okay? So it was pointed out to me this passage of Scripture. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I was told the gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that must mean that you should not be embarrassed or ashamed to be walking around with the Bible. And that's what I was told the passage meant. And that's what I lived for several years. But I want to ask you, is this really saying don't be ashamed to read the Bible? I will suggest to you, you should not be ashamed to read the Bible, but that's not at all what Paul meant when he wrote it. He wrote this before the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written. Or at least before they were in good circulation. Now, it wasn't until years later when I had a chance to sit under Dr. Harvey Floyd at Lipscomb University as a Greek professor that I had a chance to learn something different. Now, y'all have heard me tell Dr. Floyd's stories because he was a monumental influence in my life. And I can't talk about this subject without adding another story or two. 
Uh, Dr. Floyd, it was said that if you are a good teacher, you can teach at the same institution for a decade. If you are beloved by the students, you can teach at the same institution for two decades. If you're a good teacher beloved by the students and, and, and beloved by the faculty, you can teach for three decades. Dr. Floyd taught Greek at Lipscomb for five decades. Yeah, when he passed a few years ago, the stories were legion. One of my friends reminded me of the final exam of first-year Greek class. First-year Greek class, you memorize, for Dr. Floyd, like 267 different paradigms. You've got to know every tense of every regular verb, every irregular verb, every conjugation of every noun and every form and every, I mean, every adjective. You, you've got, and you sit down for the final exam and it's a blank tablet and you just write them out. All 267 forms take several hours to do. My friend who was telling me this story says, yeah. He says, I went back to get my final exam. Dr. Floyd handed it to me and I had missed an accent on one word in one form. And Dr. Floyd said to me, Jeff, you can do better than this. And made him sit there and rewrite the whole thing. <laughs> Dr. Floyd cared about it so intensely. And he was the one who first dug into this text for me. In a way that profoundly altered my understanding of God. My understanding of me. My understanding of scripture. And my understanding of theology. So I want to get into that with you this morning, at least in a first phase. I will not be able to do all of this in one lesson. But in lesson one, I want to talk to you a little bit about translating and how translation work is done. And then I want to talk to you about the context of Paul's letter to the Romans. And third and finally, I want us to focus in on one certain term that Paul has used, and that is the term gospel. So if you'll work with me through this, the first thing we'll do is talk about translating. Now, translating is not an easy chore. It's difficult on so many different levels. We tend to think, just tell me what the word means. But you cannot take the Greek language as it was written in biblical times 2,000 years ago and take each word and simply assign it an English word. It doesn't work. Let me give you an everyday example of, of something even more modern. The Hawaiian word aloha. What does it mean? It means hello? means goodbye. Well, it's kind of hard to get two diametrically opposed meanings like hello or goodbye. Which is it? So you get an invitation in the mail to the Aloha Hawaii party. Is it a welcoming party for someone new? Hello. Or is it a going away party for someone leaving? Goodbye. You don't know. You got to be ready for both. 
unless you happen to know who the honoree is and if it's a new person you got to figure it's probably a welcoming party if it's someone who's been around forever and is moving it's got to be a goodbye party aloha now Greek has aloha on steroids let me give you an example that we'll talk about more in a couple of weeks but it's a one out of these verses and other places there are a whole set of Greek words that grow out of the DK root dikaios, dikaiosune, all sorts of, of, of words that come out of the DK group let me give you a few of them one Greek root in, in, in Greece or in ancient biblical Greek can be translated in English versions as right and all of those words that go with it righteous righteousness all of the right words or just and the words that go with that justice justification all of those from the DK root also the word fair the word punishment the word judge the word ordinance or rule all of these from the same Greek root and so if you're a scholar who's trying to translate this how are you going to do it if it were English I'd say go pick up Webster's dictionary and read what the definition of the word is but that doesn't work in Greek because nobody left us a dictionary we don't have one that's why what Samuel Webster did was so profound for the English language he made a dictionary but the ancient Greeks we don't if they had a dictionary it's blown to the wind because we don't have it but that's not to say that it's a guessing game it's not a guessing game there are tools for language that enable us to do it now I don't want to talk about just the tools that the professionals might be using I want to talk about the tools now available to us that we will use in this class the first is very simple there are books that are out they're generally called lexicons because it's taking an old ancient language and giving an English definition so you can get one of these lexicons and simply look it up a real thorough well-known historical lexicon is Bauart and Gingrich's Greek lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature and you can look a word up in there and it'll give you a definition but the definition is generally a range of meaning so you've got to go beyond that you've got to look at the word in its context this is how you can decide if aloha is a welcoming party or a going away party you look at it in its context so we get a Greek word we can look it up in the dictionary but then we need to read through the context why well, I'm so appreciative of brother Paul aka Dieter for being up here and helping us with some context 
You want to not just look at the context within the passage itself, though. There's a third very important tool that we need to use. And that is to examine how the same author, in this case the Apostle Paul, examine how that author used the word in other occurrences. So when we look at the word we're going to look at today, gospel, in verse 16, it's important to know Paul's already used the same word twice in the letter. And he uses it a ton. So if we put these tools together, those are the tools that give us a good approach for understanding a word as we dig deeper into the passage. You with me? You are one-third through with class. We've made it through the hard part. Now let's get to the historical part. Let's talk about the context. We need to understand why Paul wrote the book called Romans. He'd never been to the church before. He'd wanted to go, but he couldn't go. We know, by the way, for at least two or three years why he couldn't go. Four years, actually. He was prevented from going, as he said, as Dieter quoted, for four years. And let's talk about how we know that. Because if we understand the context of what Paul wrote, it's going to help infuse these words in this passage with meaning. So what do we know about the church at Rome? Well, we actually know a pretty good bit. We know, for example, if we put up a map of the Mediterranean world, we know where it is. It's at Rome. Beyond that, we know how it started in 33 AD in Jerusalem. Jewish people from all over the Mediterranean world had gone to Jerusalem for the festival we call Pentecost. And it was on Pentecost that the Holy Spirit descended upon Peter. And he took those keys to the kingdom and he unlocked the door. Because Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, stands up and preaches about Jesus crucified. And over 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus, were baptized into the church that day. Including... People from Rome. Luke makes that clear in the book of Acts chapter 2. So you've got people from Rome, Jews from Rome, who are in Jerusalem for the festival. They hear the message, they become believers in Jesus, and they return home to Rome. And that's the beginning of the church. Those are the first believers so the church starts with Roman Jews, 33 A.D. Now it's not until the 40s that the church, whoa, come up here, that, that this gets interesting. There was an emperor for Rome that started reigning 41 A.D. He reigned until 54 when he died. Emperor Claudius Augustus Caesar. We know him simply as Claudius. 
Emperor Claudius, in the process of reigning in Rome, had his career written up a generation later by the official Roman historian of the Caesars, Suetonius, who wrote a book, or actually it's a set of like five, uh, of, of what happened during the reigns of the various Caesars, the lives of the twelve Caesars. So Suetonius writes a book and gives us some very information about some critical things that happened during the reign of Claudius. Critical in that they happened among the church. Now remember about the church here. The church is formed in the 30s with Jewish believers and continues to spread among Jewish believers. Gentiles don't start entering the church until the 40s. So you've got all of these Jewish believers who for a decade have continued to grow and prosper as a church body living in the, the city of Rome, a city of a million people, but a large Jewish population and a number of those Jews were becoming Christians and believers. Then in the 40s, some Gentiles start coming in. Some just general people who live in Rome that aren't Jewish. The Goyim. The, the, the foreigners. And they come into the church as well. Now, you with me? You got that? Because go back. Here's something happens. In the 40s, the church starts including the Gentiles. But while Claudius is emperor and reigning... The Jews, the Jewish community inside Rome, starts fighting amongst themselves. I mean, like serious discord. Such that Suetonius, in writing the history of the Emperor Claudius, says the following. Iudeos impulsore cresto assidui tumultuantus Roma expulit. Can you believe Do y'all mind if I translate the Latin for you? Let me translate the Latin. The Jews were constantly fighting about Christ. So Jews were expelled from Rome. Claudius kicked all the Jews out from Rome. That means Paul can't come in. And a Priscilla and Aquila, a Priscilla and Aquila go out. But, but this is, this is, they're gone. So when all of the Jews leave Rome around 50 AD, think of what happened to the church. Here you've got a church that was formed by Jews and for over 10 years it was only Jewish. And then some Gentiles come in, but you got to know the pastors are Jewish. You got to know the people in charge of the budget are Jewish. Life group leaders are Jewish. The Gentiles are welcome to come in, but heavens, they didn't grow up with the Bible, which is what the Old Testament was to the church. So surely they're not going to be the teachers. They're not going to be the leaders. And then all of a sudden, when Claudius says all Jews are expelled from Rome, it's not just the non-Christian, non-Messianic Jews. It's all Jews. So they're gone. 
What does that leave with the church? Now all of a sudden the Gentiles have got to take on positions of leadership. They've got to be preaching. They got to be teaching. They got to be giving the Lord's Supper. They got to organize meeting times. Which house church you're going to meet in? Which house church you're not? I mean, it's them. And then as that church continues to grow, it continues to grow with more Gentiles joining, not Jews. It's kind of bizarre. By the way, this is why, though I've been talking to you about secular historians, we see evidence that fits this perfectly in the Bible because when Paul's in Corinth in 50 to 52 A.D., he comes across Priscilla and Aquila who were expelled from Rome when all the Jews got kicked out. But by the time Paul writes the letter to the Roman church, Aquila and Priscilla are back in Rome. But they were Roman teachers. They were, they were Jewish teachers at the church of Rome, of Jesus. And if you look at a map, they just left Rome and just went right across the Aegean Sea right there to Corinth and that's where they were meanwhile you've got all of this setting up so 33 AD the church starts with Roman Jews 40 AD uh, in the 40s the church starts including Gentiles and then around 50 the Jews get kicked out of Rome but 54 AD something else happened in 54 AD the Jews returned because Claudius died now what does that do to the church? For the last four years, it's been getting along pretty good. And now the Jews come back. Thank you so much for taking care of things while we were gone. We got it from here. We will assume our position of leadership. I mean, human nature is human nature. And then you got the Gentiles who are saying, well, actually, we've been growing and we've been doing pretty good without you. And you got the new Gentiles who say, I didn't even know y'all were a part of this church. What are you doing here? I like that preacher. I like that preacher. Here's my song leader. There's a, look, y'all just want to sing Hava Nagila. But the church is asking a serious question. How do we do this church thing together? And that is the context into which Paul wrote this book we call Romans. And Romans is 16 chapters long. But the theme for the entire book is wrapped up in those two verses that we're talking about. So the theme that answers how do we do this together is found in this passage. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also the Greek. See Paul's timing there? Yeah, it started with Jews, but it's the same gospel for the Greeks. 
In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk doesn't say the righteous Jew will live by faith, or the righteous Roman Gentile will live by faith, or the righteous church will divide in half and live by faith. He says the righteous will live by faith. That's where we are. Paul says, and that's how we do it together. So if that's the context, it brings up something really important to focus on. We need to focus on the terminology, that word gospel. I look at this carefully. The gospel is the power of God to save everyone who has belief. The, the, if, if you are told that the gospel is the power of God to save you. And you don't know what the content of that gospel is. Then you're missing out. So it should leave you scratching your head saying what's meant by the gospel. What does that term mean? And now we do the things that I said in the first third of this class we needed to do. By the way, we finished the second third. You're, in, you're like home free. So what is meant by the gospel? Well, we can start parsing it this way. We can say, okay, what's meant by the gospel? Let's look the word up. The word in the Greek is euangelon. You angelon. It's made up of two different words. It's a compound word. E-U means good. Well, we get the word euthanasia from it, which is supposed to be someone's dying a good death. We get the word euphoria from it, which is a feeling of, of greatness, good feeling. Give me another U word we get. Eulogy, good words about the person who is deceased. Euphoric, like euphoria. Any more you words? Euphemism, saying something a little bit nicer than it comes across in its crudeness. See, we take that you and we put it in front of a lot of things to make a lot of English words. That's something we've inherited from the language. So, you, good and then angle on. Buried in the middle of that is angle or angel. An angel, an angelos in the Greek, is someone who brings a message from God. Because the angelion, angelion here is the message itself that's brought by the angel, the angelos. So the angle, angel, brings the message. The messenger brings the message. By the way, angel is also used in the context of a, 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 of, of a Roman soldier who's being sent with orders for the Roman general. He's an angel. He's a messenger. Angels are not simply used for divine beings. Angel is just the common word for a messenger and the common word for the message being carried is angelion. So you've got a good message. And if you look it up in the dictionary, you're going to see it's translated good message or good news. 
and perhaps you've been taught. The gospel is the good news. That's right, but that's inadequate. If I were to tell you, if I were to say, I have the greatest news you could possibly get. This is news. It is so great. It's the salvation of your eternal soul. See ya. And then I leave? What does that do for you? I'd say, tell me the news. Tell me what it is. I want to know. I need to know. What is the content? So we've got to go a step further than looking up in the dictionary. We need to ask this question. What was the gospel to Paul? When Paul spoke of good news, what did he mean? It was a very important word to Paul. The word gospel is used in the New Testament 76 times. 60 of them from the pen of Paul. One of them from the mouth of Paul. It's just Luke wrote it down. So we could say over 60 times of the 76 times it's used in the Bible, it's used by Paul. It's like 75%? I don't know. Do the math. But what we need to do then is that third step I told you in the tools of how to translate. We need to see how does Paul use the word gospel? What was the good news to Paul what was so great that he had a, an ability to call it a great message a euangelion well we'll find that let's start with Romans Romans 1 as Dieter quoted it Paul begins in Romans 1 and here's what he says we're going to do some Elmo work here he says Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. So when Paul speaks of the gospel, I think it is fair, no, not fair, I think it is proper to say the gospel is promised beforehand by God in the scriptures. Ah, promised in scripture. Got it? Now, it's not just promised by God in Scripture. This is testified to by Jesus. Jesus was constantly telling his apostles what he was about to do was something that had been foreordained in Scriptures. And if we go to, I think it's Matthew 16, 21, you'll see more of this. In Matthew 16, 21, Jesus, this is a, a, the passage where Peter is proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God, but then after that, Jesus says the following. It starts putting it into context. From that time, Jesus began to show, hold on, began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. Jesus and the scriptures indicated that Jesus, as promised in scripture to, to be here, this gospel concerns the suffering of Jesus. The death of Jesus. This is Paul's gospel. Now that's not generally good news. Let me give you some great news. You're going to suffer. Let me give you some great news. You're going to be tortured. Let me give you some wonderful news. Your Lord is going to die. At the hands of wicked people. In itself, that doesn't seem like good news. But if we understand what's going on here, we'll still see why it's said. Now Peter, who's just had this encounter with Jesus, much later in his life, is writing a letter. And if we look at 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11, Peter says it this way. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So we know from this that it's not simply the sufferings of Christ but also the glories, and it's all about the grace of God. Grace means gift that you don't deserve. Okay? So the, the gospel promised in Scripture about the suffering and death of Jesus is one that is linked to the grace of God. And linked... To the glory of Christ. This is Paul's gospel. Now this isn't the only place that we read about this. But I do want to read about the Old Testament prophets. That Paul, Jesus and Peter are all saying speak to Jesus and his sufferings. Because we can read about it in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, we read about Jesus' suffering. It starts speaking of Jesus very early. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He wasn't Mr. Universe, beautiful. All of this, that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief, intimate with grief. He was as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us. All. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation he was cut off out of the land of the living. And stricken for the transgression of my people. It was the will of the Lord. Uh oh, where did I lose it? There it is. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. This is it. I mean, it, it, the chapter ends. He poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. He makes intercession for the transgressors. The suffering of Jesus, the gospel, was promised in Scripture that Jesus would suffer and die on our behalf. He would suffer and die for us. This is the grace of God. This is what God does for us. This is what God has given us that we don't deserve. There's not a person in here. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how good you are. There's not a person in here who deserves the grace of God. Dr. Floyd would tell the story about how this man dies and he goes to heaven. And he's at the pearly gates. He's waiting to get in. He's standing in line. You don't cut line there. He's standing in line and he overhears in front of him Peter telling somebody takes a thousand points to get in here. And the man feels pretty good about things. Thinks, a thousand points, I could do that. Peter gets to him. Peter says, okay, next up. Takes a thousand points to get in here. And the man begins. Oh, I was very good. I was very, very good. I gave more than a thousand dollars to charity and the Lord. At my church. Peter says, that's impressive. The guy starts walking in. Peter says, whoa, 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 wait, what else you got? And the man said, well, oh, I'm sorry, I left out a lot. Uh, I was a family man. I was faithful to my wife. I brought up my kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I sacrificed for the good of my family. Uh, uh, I was patient. I was kind. I was gentle. I was loving. I exhibited self-control, all of the fruit of the Spirit. I was uh, just really there. And he lists like three, 4,000 good things that he had done. Peter says, that is impressive. We haven't had anybody that good up here in a long time. I'm going to give you a point for that. <laughs> and the guy said, well, are you going to give me a Oh, I left out church. Okay, I served at church. I went on mission trips. I taught the fifth graders. And you know how tough that can be. I taught the eighth graders. That's even rougher. I did youth camp freedom weekend. I, did, uh, I was a deacon. I was in the welcoming committee. I'd, and he lists 5,000 ways he worked through church. Good things he'd done. Peter took his glasses off. He wears them. <laughs> Peter took his glasses off and he says, I must tell you, 
I don't remember anyone with as good a tally sheet as you've got. I'm going to give you another point. The man said, wait a minute. I've listed over 10,000 holy things I did for the Lord. It takes 1,000 to get in here. I've listed 10,000. It takes 1,000 points to get in. I've listed 10,000 good deeds. And you're giving me two points? Peter says, yeah. The guy says, well, how but by the grace of God does anybody get in here? <laughs> Peter said, and that's your 1,000 points. Come on in. <laughs> so... <laughs> The, 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 the point of this is, I don't care how good you are. If Jesus has not suffered and died for you and for me, we have no hope. Because we will suffer and die, not for the 10,000 good things we did, but for the one bad thing we did. Sin separates from God. Adam and Eve were not driven out of the garden when their sin outgrew their goodness it was when they sinned God is a 100% holy God he has a 100 average that means if you're gonna be enveloped in this God in held in his bosom you must be 100% pure because he's not gonna dilute himself he can't the 100% God can't take someone who scores a 99 on their test. Much less those of us who are just barely, well, I'm starting to say passing. I'm, I think I'm failing. <laughs> I've got a failing grade on my own. But you take the most righteous among you. God can't hold a 99%er. Much less the people who say, well, he's going to be all right with me. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That's never been the test. God's not a 51% righteous God. He's 100% pure. And so sin, I was talking to a buddy of mine this week. And, and, and I asked him, I, said, I was asking him about, uh, actually I wasn't asking him about anything. He was just talking. And I love to hear him talk. And he was telling me about he had had an affair on his wife, was in an affair. They were at a church retreat, and at a marriage retreat, and he was there sitting um, with the woman he was having an affair with on one side and his wife on the other. And he said, uh, he said God convicted me that this wasn't right. Wait to listen to the Lord. And uh, uh, he said, uh, he said, so, he said, I went to the preacher, and, and oh, that's how we got into this story. I was talking about a, a preacher who's very dear to my heart, who's in his 80s now that I've seen recently, and I just love him to death. And he says, yeah, that preacher saved my life. I said, really? And he, so, so he starts telling me the story. So the preacher was leading the, the marriage weekend. And my friend says, I went to the preacher and I said, I got to tell you, I've been having an affair for the last five years with my best friend's wife. And, uh, uh, and the preacher said, so what's God telling you to do about that? He said, well, God's telling me to quit, but he's also telling me that I need to, to confess it. And I need to, to, to confess it. And... and uh, the, 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 the preacher said, 
okay, so why don't you do what God tells you to? And he said, well, I'm not sure I should confess it because what a burden I'm putting on my wife. It doesn't make sense to me that I should confess it. It just makes sense that I should get out of it or something. And the preacher said, well, if God's telling you to do it, does it have to make sense? You need to do what God's telling you to do. Now, make sure you're hearing it from the Lord, but then do what God's telling you to do. So my friend said, but, but, but my, my world could come to an end. My wife could divorce me. I could, we've got a child. I could lose rights around that child. Um, it would mess up our finances. It would mess up my career. And the preacher said to him, what? You know your Bible. What are the wages of sin? And my friend said, death. And the preacher said, so anything she does to you short of killing you is an act of mercy. Uh, 20 years later, their marriage is so strong. They are so, such an inspiration and a blessing. Um, but I love that. What, what are the wages of sin? Death. Anything short of that is an act of mercy. What are the wages of sin? Death. It doesn't matter if you're having an affair on your spouse or if you're telling little lies to get by or if you're envying someone who's got something you don't. Or if you care more about what happens to you than you do the person next to you. Or if you're gossiping about someone. It doesn't matter what the sin is. The wages of sin are death. When Paul was leaving and wouldn't see the Ephesians again. He called the elders together. And in Acts 20, 24, he said something really profound to them. that gives us insight. In Acts 20, 24, Paul says to those elders. I do not account my life of any value. Nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, this gift of God. You see, for Paul, the gospel that's promised in Scripture, the suffering and death of Jesus, that's linked to the grace of God, that's linked to the glory of God in Christ, the good news is Jesus died so you don't have to. That's good news. That's what Paul says his gospel is. He explains it real clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised. In accordance with the scriptures. But what starts that passage out for Paul? I would remind you brothers and sisters of the gospel I preached to you. That is the good news. I would remind you of the good news. The good news is Jesus died for our sins. That's amazing news. I mean, that's, that's what Paul has talked about here. Now, what was the gospel for Paul? If we go back to the PowerPoint, please. 
Oh, wrong PowerPoint. Go back to mine. Maybe. Well, if they get to the PowerPoint, here's what I'm going to tell you on the slide. The gospel to Paul was the death of Christ, but not that alone. Because understand, Paul often spoke of the death of Christ, but he never spoke of a dead Christ. Because Christ was alive. Paul often spoke of the death of Christ, but never of a dead Christ. Even Festus got this. When Paul has been arrested and, and Agrippa, King Agrippa and Bernice come in to, to Caesarea where the Roman governor Festus is. The Roman governor Festus says, hey, I've got a case I want to talk to you about. It's this guy named Paul. Here's all this stuff that went down. And I thought Paul must have done something really, really, really bad. But I called him in, in front of me. And it turns out he didn't really do anything all that bad. So he says, um, he says, ah, let me make sure I've got the right passage. Acts 25, 19. It's the verse I'm looking for. So Festus is talking about this, and Festus gets it. Festus says, when the accusers stood up, they didn't bring a charge against Paul with such evils as I thought they would. Rather, they had certain points of fighting with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. He got it. Paul did not speak of a dead Christ. He spoke of the death of Christ. But the glory of that is that Jesus was resurrected. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, please. Within the framework of that, here's the bottom line to hold you over for two weeks. Because next Sunday I'll be in South Africa. I've got, I'm going to teach a one-week uh, uh, apologetics thing at a seminary there, so pray for me, please. Um, David Capes is set to teach here next week. He's writing a book right now on Matthew, and he's going to dig deep into one of the Matthew scriptures for you. But the bottom line is, for, to last you for two weeks, is Paul says that the gospel is the key to your salvation. And what we need to understand when he says that is he's saying Christ suffering on our behalf is the power that God has to save us. And I want to talk to you about this more because there's so much more wrapped up in what Paul's saying. Like, why does Jesus have to die? Why do, is that the power of God to save? And how do I get that? And how does that translate into my life and what I'm doing now? All of those are still wrapped up to be dug out of these verses. So please, please, please come back in two weeks and let's do it together, okay? Let me bless you in the name of Jesus. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray your blessings upon us. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the suffering. We thank you for the, the agony. We thank you for what you endured to secure for us an eternity with you that's based in righteousness and based in justice as well as your love and your mercy.
Father, may we stand and live firmly rooted with your gospel of full peace, shalom, with each other and with you on our feet. May that, that every step we take be a step with our feet shod with the gospel of peace, completeness. We pray through the blood of Jesus. It's the only way we approach you. Amen.